This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. When Shiloh uh, suggested the idea of this series to me, I thought, hard times. It's all hard times. <laughs> and, and it's, um, I mean, the Buddha, that's the message of the first noble truth, is that it's all hard times. The first truth is that usually understood as the truth of suffering. But basically in the text, what the Buddha says is the noble truth of suffering. And then just a list of unpleasant experience, experiences. Okay, so the, there's the existential stuff, birth. I mean, Mark Twain said, why do we rejoice at births and, and grieve at deaths? He said, I think it's because we're not the parties involved. <laughs> we all started with a big no. Birth, aging, sickness and death, the existential things. And then... You know, unpleasant physical and mental pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, and then some interesting ones. Not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you care about. Anybody missed any of these? You know, I mean, this is part of the conditions in which we find ourselves. And the Buddha said this is you know, our task here is to understand this experience. This is what, you know, the Buddha described as the first dart. It's the the pain of being alive, the unsatisfactoriness of being alive. Well, actually, the second dart is the unsatisfactoriness part. And I'm, I'm thinking that that this metaphor of chronic illness is useful because um, it, it, the, as a metaphor, it shines a, a slightly different light on, on the Buddha's insight. And it suggests that the Dharma is sort of like an inoculation, an immunity booster that enables us to stop turning unpleasant experience into suffering. So the second truth, the second teaching is about the way we're built, the way we're constituted, the way we have been cultured evolutionarily. We're survival machines. We're want machines. Any would-be ancestor who felt satisfied at any point in their life probably didn't live a whole lot longer than that. So wanting to to survive and navigating by pleasantness and unpleasant. We didn't come with a manual. So we we navigate in terms of the pleasantness or unpleasantness of our experience. This is our our disposition, our constitution. Um, And I would say in this metaphor, it's our chronic condition. We can't not be that way. You know, the Buddha described it in the, in the, uh, in the, the uh, second, as the second truth, as uh, tanha, which, which is an underlying tendency of ours 
there are three kinds of this. There's the desire, the tendency to want our experience to be pleasant, to want unpleasant experience to go away, and to keep on keeping on, and to figure out using, using our brain the best way we can do that. Kamatana, the preference for pleasantness. Bawatanha, the desire, the preference for surviving, keeping on. And Vibhavatanha, the disposition to make unpleasantness go away. This is just how we're, we're built. But then when we encounter that list of unpleasant experiences, when we encounter this life, what happens is we generate complaint, resistance. Complaint is a great metaphor for dukkha because complaint is an expressed dissatisfaction with whatever it is you're complaining about. Whether it's a justified or unjustified complaint, those kinds of those kinds of things are, um, well, we try to, to uh, persuade ourselves that everything is good because we want things to be pleasant. But complaints, complaints are a great marker for dukkha. And I guess in the end, we would want our lives, we would want to live a life that would be complaint-free. But a complaint is a chronic illness. This is the nature of our chronic illness. It's the mixture of that unpleasantness and our reactivity to it, which comes up as resistance, aversion, not liking complaint. This tanha generates, well, for those of you who are familiar with the, the chain of dependent origination, tanha generates upadana. Upadana, greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, the wanting, the desire, sensual desire, pleasantness, desire for pleasant stories. We want our lives to be pleasant. We want the, the accounts, the soundtrack. I mean, if we look at our lives, really, these are the heaven realms, but the soundtrack, not so good. <laughs> you know. we, want, we want the pleasantness and the delusion is that we could make things pleasant, that we could be satisfied. Really, the, the disposition, the second truth is describing the way we are. We're want machines. You know? Don Draper, if you watch Mad Men, Don Draper once, he was an advertising exec set in the 50s, and he said, happiness, that's just after you get what you want and right before you want the next thing. I've always thought that the pursuit of happiness is sort of a con because if you're pursuing it, you're already dissatisfied. But if you don't pursue it, you're stuck with the way things are. And that includes pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want. But the Buddha said that it's not necessary to complain. That's sort of the third truth. That the chronic illness part, the greed, the wanting, the aversion, the anger, the fear, and the delusion that gives rise to them, that those those things can be abandoned. 
and then you take apart, you, you deconstruct the suffering, and you're just left with unpleasantness. And people like Stephen Batchelor say, well, the Buddha didn't overcome Dukkha because he got old and he got sick and he died. But I actually think that Dukkha is that mixture of our aversion and the unpleasantness. They're... they're, um, They're not... I mean, when you when you abandon the unpleasantness, then you're left you're left just with with. And so, how do you do that? Because how do you end this chronic illness? Our chronic condition is to want things pleasant. We can't do anything about that. We can't do anything really about what happens to us. Often, pleasantness, unpleasantness comes and goes in our experience. So we're, we're sort of... And, and, you know, if you talk to the neuroscience people, they'll tell you that the intentions that we act from arise in our neurology about a fifth of a second before we become aware of them. So our intentions are on automatic pilot. They, they happen you know, we aren't, we aren't actually doing them. They arise out of causes and conditions which include what's going on, the pleasantness, unpleasantness of going on, our disposition and our understanding of what's happening. That understanding is the key. Because you can take a, an unpleasant experience and reframe it so that it's Okay. I, there was a, a time earlier in my life when I, my doc said, you've got to lose 30 pounds. And I, holy jumping, that's not easy to do. And anybody who's tried probably knows. So I, I thought about it and I thought, okay, I'm going to, the feelings of hunger I reframed as the feeling of losing weight. And then it became a pleasant experience, even though it was physically unpleasant. So you can reframe all kinds of things. So your understanding determines whether or not you suffer. In the, in the dependent origination chain, our disposition gives rise to our wanting. And that wanting, even when we want something, you know, there's a sense of lack there, which is unsatisfactory. We don't like feeling that sense of lack. And, it, and it, it, in the end, that sense of lack applies to our, the entire life. It's not satisfactory. We, don't, we want to live forever or, or die trying anyway. Um, so it's, so you know, the, this experience itself is not satisfactory. But we... But we look for how to work with chronic illness, how to live with chronic illness. Those of us who are, who are living with, a, with a, an actual diagnosed physical condition have to figure out how to adapt to it. And it's the same with dukkha. Dukkha is a chronic illness that we have to learn to adapt to. And how do we live with, with that? We live with it according to the, the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path is the way 
to live with chronic illness and the way to live without complaint, to live a complaint-free life. Sometimes I reframe the four truths as um, such is complaint, such the origin of complaint, the cessation of complaint, and the way to live without complaint. And that fourth truth is interesting because it's really the Buddha's program and I rarely get very far from it. One of, uh, one of the teachers I, I studied early on was Ayakema and she used to say that anything besides the Four Noble Truths is excess dharma. I teach, I teach suffering in the end of suffering. And he articulated his insight most clearly with the four truths and the dependent origination chain. So how does the Dharma, how does right view allow us to not turn unpleasantness into suffering, not to make things worse? At the prison, I work in a mental health context where I'm not allowed to talk about the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So I teach mindfulness as a mental health process, but still the Dharma can show up in street language. First truth is shit happens. Nobody ever disagrees with me about that. But there we go. It's that first list that shit happens, and we usually make it worse. That's the second truth. And don't make things worse, in a sense, is, you know a way of framing the Buddha's deepest teaching. Not to make, we can't do anything about the unpleasantness and the pain that comes to our lives, but we can avoid making things worse. Well, how do you do that? Well, you live the Eightfold Path. There's, you know, the notion of path is kind of, is a metaphor too. I've heard teachers say the path to the Grand Canyon is not the Grand Canyon and the path to Nibbana is not Nibbana. So that's a path that's going somewhere in a particular way. But a path could also be a circumambulation of a holy stupa. It can be just a circular path and the task is to just get on the path and stay on the path, not that you're going to actually go anywhere except stay on the path. And I think that living the Eightfold Path becomes, becomes the way... Now, when the, Buddha, the Buddha's instruction for the Eightfold Path is to cultivate it. His instruction for the first truth is to understand it, to understand dukkha. Dukkha is a word that um, refers to a whole range of experience. It, it cuts up our experience in a slightly different way than... Um, we're used to. It includes all of the aversive stuff, the not liking stuff, so it could be just unease, uneasiness, impatience. It could be very mild. It can be irritation or frustration. It can be anger, rage. It can be fear, panic. All of it. So the range can be, can be really great. It can be a huge, huge range of our experience. The Buddha says, understand this. And when he talks about, when he gets to the Eightfold Path, there's an interesting uh, text in the Anguttara Nikaya where he says, for one of right understanding, everything else falls into place. For one of wrong understanding or delusional understanding, 
everything goes south. So the task is to cultivate right view, samaditi, right understanding. We, can't, we don't live without a story in our mind. If I say what's going on, you're going to tell me a story about what's going on. You give me an account. You have an understanding of, wow, my gosh, what do we know really? Anybody here know why we're here? I've never had anybody put up their hands. Now, what are we doing here? What is this all about? I was, when, I, when my son was four, he was in the back of the car, and he said, what is all this for? <laughs> At the time, the best I could come up with was, it gives us something to do. <laughs> uh, I, wasn't, I hadn't prepared. <laughs> I mean, we really don't have a clue about what's going on, do we really? You know, each one of us has a different view of things. I think our, 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 what we see in, in our experience is like a rainbow. A rainbow is a great metaphor. I mean, really, there's no rainbow there if you look at a rainbow, right? The rainbow happens in our neurology. We, we, the person standing next to us says, see the rainbow, and we look and we... Say, yeah, it's a beautiful rainbow, as if we're talking about the same thing. And there isn't anything there to begin with. You know, our experience is a conditioned arising. It's not a thing. There are no things in it. The first element of the Eightfold Path is right understanding, right story. What kind of a story enables us to live without complaint? What kind of an account, what kind of an understanding enables us to live without <clears throat> turning unpleasantness into suffering, without making it worse? Classically, the understanding is, uh, right understanding is understanding anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, the impermanence of all things, the unsatisfactoriness of our experience. And the non-substantiality of self. It's to understand how we work, to understand our disposition, to understand dukkha. We usually don't pay attention to a lot of this experience. We pay attention to the objects of desire and aversion. That's what we're focused on. right? When we think of he who should not be named. <laughs> we don't usually pay attention to the reaction in us. You know, there's a lot in this experience that we don't pay attention to. Right now, you're probably not paying attention to the feelings in your feet. You can check them out. There are feelings there, but we were not paying attention to them. They were there all along. All of the internal feelings... The, the wanting, the not wanting. And the clinging to our, to our views of, of what's going on, that's all available for, for us to see if we direct our attention there. But understanding, right understanding, which is the Dharma, I think, um, understanding dukkha, Dukkha comes with the territory. Satisfaction is 
is, is sort of a fantasy. I have a friend who spent three months in a cave in Burma meditating. It was, it, it was associated with another cave that was across the valley, and the story is that these two monks went in there and they were going to stay until they attained full enlightenment, and the, when one of them did, they would hang the lantern out and they could see it from across the valley. So my friend spent three months there, and of course this cave has been around for a while, so it's been used for a while, and somebody's put down a nice board so that you don't have to sleep on the rock. And it's all, the stone is polished, there's a cistern in the back, and there's graffiti, of course. And he said one of the, one of the, uh, one of the lines was, what a joy to discover there's no permanent happiness in this life just to be free from that pursuit. That pursuit is a tension with the life that we're living. So understanding, understanding dukkha is, is at the heart. Understanding the nature of complaint. We, we want the way we're built to want. So right understanding... Given tanha, right understanding will give us freedom. And ignorance, delusion, upadana will give us dukkha. So right, the cultivation of right understanding, of, of insight, sometimes it's called wisdom, but wisdom sort of feels like, it feels a little thingy to me. You know, it's, it's uh, insight, penetrating insight. The cultivation of that is, is, the, is the heart of the practice for me. And we do, we do it with the meditation practice. We work with that. I'll, we get down there as we get through the, the Eightfold Path. But right intention, intention always flows from our understanding. If we th- if we have, if we understand, I mean, however we understand things, we'll act. Is that obvious? Do I have to have examples of that? I mean, if we think this is the winning ticket, we're going to buy it. You know, whatever that we act out, we act out our understanding. And if our understanding is includes the delusion of self, the belief that the mirage of self that we experience is actually the way we are, well then greed, hatred, and delusion flows from that. The understanding of impermanence, of course, undercuts any possibility that we could be an agent. I mean, the notion of agency is really the problem. But if there is, if everything is impermanent, nothing lasts, everything's in process, there isn't a thing anywhere. Stephen Batchelor likes to say, there's no, there's no experience that corresponds to the word it. Because we, you know, in Zen they say, call this a pen, I'll hit you with it. Say it's not a pen, I'll hit you with it. What is it? It's the reason I practice in the Theravadan tradition. It's what, what it is. But these molecules weren't a pen some time ago, and how long is it going to be before it's not a pen again? And pen is a concept that we 
see in the world. And the same with self. Self is a concept that's useful. It's like we have this map of Nama Rupa. It's the map of this experience that we're in the midst of, that we use to navigate. There's a, there's a book that's just come out by a guy named Donald Hoffman, who's a neuroscientist at UC Irvine. And the title of the book is The Case Against Reality. And he says, you know, our experience with, with the world is sort of like our experience with a computer screen. It's, it's lucky that we've got computers, because I don't know what metaphor he'd use if we didn't have them. He says, you know, you look at that screen, and there's a folder on the screen, right? It's not a folder. Right? But, but it's not nothing. And it, there's something back there, bits and bytes, if, if you know what that is. I don't, all I know is the folder, but bits and bytes, I think. And then if you drag that folder to the trash, it's not really the trash. But if you actually drag it to the trash, something happens to the bits and bytes. He says, our, our, you know, our understanding, our relationship to this experience is practical. It's not necessarily accurate. It functions to help us navigate and survive. And yet we believe it. And then, of course, we argue over it. Right? Certs is a candy mint, certs is a breath mint. Okay, so, so if, you're, if you're under 60, <laughs> you won't know that. But we'll fight over, you know, God is blue or God is red, right? Or, you know, Mozart's better than Bach or, the, you know, whatever. We have our view of the way things are. The universe is 18 billion years or 13 billion years or 6,000 years. However you think of it, you know, we, we believe it even though we really don't have a clue, you know. So our intentions, if our intentions are rooted in the delusion of, of self and getting, getting ourselves happy by getting what we want, if we think we're going to satisfy ourselves by getting what we want, we will pursue strategies of greed and hatred, greed and anger, desire and aversion, wanting, not wanting, in the service of the delusion that that's the way we make ourselves happy. I think that what the Buddha found was that there was, he sort of found a glitch in the firmware. You know, the way you don't, the way you make things better is to not make them worse. You can't guarantee that anything you do is going to make things better. Surgeon tries the best he can, the best she can, the best the team can do, and the patient can still die. So should we not do surgery because it'll cause, it could cause harm? It, you know, the Buddha was focused on the intention. What was important is the intention. So if the intention is not rooted in a delusional self or in the mirage of self, then it would be, well, you find the Brahma Viharas there.
equanimity. Friendliness, compassion, and resonant joy. Those intentions would show up. Equanimity, just present with the way things are, not not dissatisfied, not pursuing happiness, engaging fully what pain is present, when unpleasantness is present, and responding out of compassion rather than out of anger and aversion. So right intention flows from right understanding. And right understanding is, in my, in my, uh, in my understanding, is the Dharma. So seeing, recognizing the unsatisfactory and the emptiness of things. And that leads, well, that leads to right speech, right action, right livelihood. These things are often taught as right conduct, sila, morality, ethical behavior. But I actually think of them differently. I think speaking, acting, and assembling a life in a way that doesn't make things worse, that doesn't inject, that doesn't create more dukkha, more dissatisfaction, uh, is the goal of practice. Isn't that what we want to live, speak, act, and assemble a life without suffering, without dukkha, without making things worse? You know, if you if you see it pretty much as um, just something to get to the meditation elements, just, you know, just a matter of the precepts. I think the precepts are abstracted from them, but they're, you know, so right speech is not just the, the, the precepts that you can assemble about pre, uh, speech. It's about living without dukkha, without complaint. Right speech, is it possible to live without complaint? I find that a very useful navigational device. And then right effort, of course, is the energy to express the uh, intention, to act out the intention. On the dependent origination chain, it would be bhava, bhava, what follows after upadana. So we've got our disposition, we've got our chronic condition, which is the way we're built. And when we engage the world that's full of unpleasantness and unsatisfactory, and unsatis- well, unpleasantness and pain, we regard that as unsatisfactory and we struggle with it. We, we enter into an aversive relationship to it rather than to a compassionate relationship to the pain that, that we and others feel. The right effort, of course, depends entirely on not being deluded. Because if you turn the gain up, you you apply effort behind a delusional understanding or a delusional expectation, probably not going to work out for you. Maybe that's just me. Samasati... The Eightfold Path, the purpose of the path is to enable us to stop complaining, stop suffering, 
Stop taking the bait, the bait of pleasant objects. Pleasant objects could be even just a condition that we think will be pleasant. You can imagine, <laughs> my mind goes to politics. We're just really in, in we're, we're all crazy right now, aren't we? I mean, it's just, it's just really nuts because we are not separate from the environment. You know, it's like you can give up cars. You can say, I'm not going to have anything to do with cars, but if you walk around, you're still going to have to deal with them. So I, I want to come up with something besides a political example. Samasati is about paying attention to the internal stuff that we usually don't pay attention to. Like we don't pay attention to our feet. Dukkha is a physical, it's something we feel physically. It's not a metaphysical thing. It's something tactile. We learn to pay attention by practicing mindfulness of breathing. We practice mindfulness of feeling tone. Hmm. So one of the things I teach, I teach, this is the second foundation of mindfulness. I teach in the prison what, something I, I, I don't call it a Vedanameter, but it, it is a Vedanameter. I'll describe it for you. It's a mental app. So when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, how's your pain on a scale of 0 to 10? You can do that, right? I mean, this isn't precision measuring, but we can do that. But you can also say, on a scale of 0 to 10, where would you rate vanilla ice cream? With 10 being, it couldn't be better, and 0 being, meh. And you can put that scale together, so from a minus 10 to a plus 10, minus 10 being the worst, the most, the most painful, it couldn't be worse, you'd be, you'd, you'd be unconscious. 10, you know, beyond orgasmic ecstasy, just, it couldn't, it can't be anymore. And, and zero being that point in the middle. So just check out for yourself right now. How are you feeling right now on a scale of minus 10 to plus 10? Can you come up with a measurement? Actually, what I've found is that there, it's possible to become increasingly precise. You can measure anything you can put your attention on. So think of, oh God, politics again. Think of Barack Obama. <laughs> on a scale of minus 10 to plus 10, where would, where would you place him? Where, does, where would you place him? Where does he show up? We aren't placing, we're just reading, right? It's a mind. Now think of the current incumbent, minus 10 to plus 10. You can measure, you know, vanilla ice cream. Uh, calibrating this scale is a great mindfulness exercise. You know, rubbing my dog, that's about an eight. It's... <laughs> She swims every day. She's clean. She's fur. She likes it. It's just, and trying to just sit there and rub her. It's, it's just great. You know, where do where do Brussels sprouts rate? <laughs> just try the experiment. In 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 the in the prison, I, I teach the guys. So they live on a tier, and there's 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 one cell after another, and there are guys in there. I work with the guys in solitary, so they just get their own. Each has their own little cell. 
So go down each one and measure your feeling about each one. It's different about each one. Vedna is a major conditioner of our, well, conditions dukkha or not. Vedana is part of, our, of the environment. It's part of the experience. It comes with every moment. You know, it's one of the skandhas. You know, it's, it's every, every moment of experience comes with a hedonic tongue, pleasant or unpleasant. And measuring it this way gives us a little bit of mindful distance. We've, we've got that Vedana meter, which actually you can use for all kinds of... It's a multi-purpose tool. How much... You can, you can measure intensity. Of how much do you want something on a scale of 0 to 10? How, how much do you resist something? And, you, and, and why, we make our decisions based on, on what we think will be most pleasant. It's just... It's, we think we're deliberating. <laughs> but we're just sort of trying to come up with what's going to be the most pleasant. So you've got Vedana, you've got, our, you've got Tanha, our disposition, and you've got Ditti, the view, our understanding. Those three things condition. So if our view is delusional, we get Dukkha. If our view is appropriate, Samaditi, then we get liberation. So samasati is about paying attention to that aspect of this experience that we're in the middle of that we don't pay attention to, which is our reaction to things, because we're captivated by the, the goal. You guys know the story of Atalanta? It's a, it's a Greek myth, I think. And she was the huntress and... and uh, her father was the king and said, time to get married. And she said, nah, and he said, uh-huh. And so she struck a deal. She said, well, okay, I'll marry any, anyone who can beat me in a foot race. Well, some suckers tried. And, oh, the other thing is if they lose, off with their head. So some people tried, and they, they blew it. And then along came Hippolyta. Any of you guys know the myth? I think it's Hippolyta. And he enlisted a friend to be positioned down the track and as they were running down the track he rolled some golden balls out onto the track and she stopped to pick them up and so much for that. <laughs> so we get distracted by the object of, of our aversion and we don't notice the aversion. We get you know, beguiled by the object of attraction and we don't notice the feeling of attraction. When you sit, and we make it so much worse. When you sit, anybody not done this? You're sitting, you've resolved not to move, you're sitting there, and then you get an itch. So on a scale of 0 to 10, think of that itch, just the itch itself. On a scale of 0 to 10, how intense is the itch? Now, if you resolve to stay still, like me, you probably had some wanting to scratch that itch. I used to meditate in the mornings after a shower, and sometimes I'd sit down and there'd be water in my ears. Oh, that was just awful. Until I realized that all I had to do was really clean them out. 
So the resistance on a scale of 0 to 10, how much is your struggle with the itch? It's more than the itch. So we take what? The itch was, would you say, a 1? Maybe something really crazy, it might be a 2. And then the struggle, what, where would you find that? Maybe a 4 or a 5? We take a 1 and turn it into a 5 or a 6? That's how we make things worse. That's the chronic illness. And the Dharma is the, call it the vaccine, the inoculation. When you see clearly, we don't get over our chronic condition, but we can live with it without making things worse. If we understand the nature of our, our delusion. And Samasamadhi is, you know, let me say one more thing about Samasati. Samasati is not the same thing as Satipatthana, in my view. So I make a distinction. Satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness, paying attention to breathing, you know, this is really useful, but I think of it as like finger exercises with music. We're practicing how to pay attention. We're, you know, using the Vedana meter, practicing how to pay attention. You know, we can use that for the third foundation, which, has, which, is, which is noticing our mind states, noticing when anger is present, when, when desire is present. We can measure that. But samasati is about recognizing our intention, because that's what shows up as you know, upadana, as greed or hatred. And our intention to treat our understanding as if it were the way things are. You know? I mean, really, we don't even know what gravity is for crying out loud. But we think we do. You know, we got Newtonian, but it doesn't sort of work with, with warped space. And I mean, what is really real? We don't. We've got a map that's a pragmatic tool. Samasati is monitoring those aspects of this experience which include our intentions that we don't usually pay attention to any more than we pay attention to the feelings in our feet, which produces insight, which cultivates right view, a deeper understanding. And Samasamadhi is the ability to maintain uh, a stability of mind so we're not distracted by the golden balls that get tossed in front of us or the taunting that shows up. Hard to do. Not easy to do. But I think, you know, all those saints that are just beaming, you know, the pictures of them, they're just beaming because they, they aren't hurting themselves. You know? <laughs> You just stop doing that and you make things automatically better. And that, what's interesting about that is that it doesn't require us to be different from the way we're evolutionarily cultivated. We want things pleasant. The best way to make things pleasant is to not make them worse. Because we can't guarantee, there's many a slip, twixt, cup, and lip. We can't be sure that what we set out to do will actually produce the pleasantness that we I mean, that's been our strategy our whole life, right? You know, imagine what would make us happy and 
try to chase it down? As Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? But the Buddha said the best way, the only way that we can guarantee that we improve the hedonic tone is to not make it worse ourselves. In the prison I say, you know, shit happens, we usually make it worse. We step in it, track it around and wonder why everything stinks. It's, it all comes out of us and we don't pay attention to it. We get distracted by the objects of desire, you know, which can be, I got to fix the drip in the roof before the rains come. It may be practical. You know, the things we want and the things we don't want. And we don't notice the wanting and the not wanting because that is where the chronic illness is. And we can't do anything about our, our chronic condition, the tanha, because that's how we're built. But we can curate the expression of our understanding. And just, I'll, I'll just finish with this. And there, the Buddha has a number of different ways of, of talking about that second truth. Tanha is one. He uses the word anusya, which translates as underlying tendency. Uh, and asavas, which sometimes Bhikkhu Bodhi, I think, translates them as cankers, defilements. And the word asava, actually, uh, the Buddha, it's a, it's a word that came from the, the Jains, and they saw it as the, the stuff that lands on us and keeps us here, the karma, the bad karma that keeps us in this plane. But the Buddha flipped the meaning the way he usually did it, and he, he means, for him, it means effluent leakage, sewage. We're leaking out into the world greed, hatred, and delusion. Our metaphysical claims is the delusion that we're leaking into the world, our wanting, our not wanting. The word naroda, which is the word for the third truth, is usually see it translated as cessation, but in the Pali, it was used to describe the process of shoring up a rice paddy to keep it from leaking. So the idea is to stop the leaking So we can curate our behavior, we can curate our intentions and just refrain. That's where the renunciation comes in. I don't like renunciation as a word. I think it's got resonances of aversion in it. But we can can express uh, only only those impulses which won't cause harm to ourselves and others. Now, understanding the Dharma is to recognize our delusion, the delusions in both our heart and our mind, our expectations. If we have delusional expectations, we'll suffer. And then to treat ourselves with compassion. Start with that. This is a horrible predicament. Meditation in hard times, it's hard times. I mean, and it's not just because the news is bad. You could, you could eliminate social injustice on the planet and still have dukkha because it has to do with the way we're built. So to treat ourselves and others with compassion and putting an end to to the chronic illness of dukkha.
Thank you guys very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.